0: Well, I'd invite you, if you have your Bibles, to take them out. Turn with me to Psalm 132. I would ask that you would uh, stand with me as we uh, read God's Word this morning. We're in our Tunes for the Trail series, Psalms that Take You Higher. Uh, this, uh, Psalm 132, is the longest of all of the Songs of Ascent. It really comes in two parts to us. There is a, an opening uh, prayer and and there is a response <clears throat> Psalm 132 Lord remember David and all his self-denial He swore an oath to the Lord He made a, a vow to the mighty one of Jacob I will not enter my house or go to my bed I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. How many of you are planners? You like to have things planned out well in advance. If you're going somewhere, you have reservations made, and a little folder, and everything has its own place, and perhaps you even create a spreadsheet. Yes, there's a couple here in, in the house. Trent's hand is very high in the air, and I would attest to that. Way to go, Trent. How many other planners? Trent's the only one? Okay, there are a few of you. Have you ever had a plan that you put together that fell through? I'm sort of a planner. I, I, can, I can go either direction. I like to have things planned out. But there's some times where, you know, on vacation, if, if we're not sure exactly how far we're going to get, you know, there's this thing called Priceline now where you can, on the road, you can log into the internet or on your phone, and you can find and bid on hotel rooms and so forth. So once in a while, it's kind of fun to travel with, with not, we have a, a vicinity of where we're going to end, but you don't have to have an exact plan. Other times, I'd just like to have everything laid out. I know the mileage we're going to go. I know what the gas mileage is going to be. I know where we're going to say, stay. I know how much it's going to cost. I know probably where we're going to eat dinner. Uh, when, when Lisa and I got married, almost 22 years ago now, we, our wedding is in December, <clears throat> I had our honeymoon all planned out. At least I thought I did. Well, our, our goal destination was to get to Florida and to stay in a hotel on the beach for a few days and enjoy walking up and down the beach and you know the beach shops and just that whole atmosphere and well we get to Florida and it's windy and it's colder than normal and it just wasn't worth it so the plans started to fall through Not to mention that we had already made some reservations in Chicago on the way down. We lived in Wisconsin. We were traveling to Florida. One, two nights we were in Chicago. I had called in advance, had our hotel, and my question on the phone was, okay, I need reservations for December 6th and 7th, December, Chicago. Do you have a pool? (laughs) Yes, we have a pool, sir. Great. Let me book the room. He failed to tell me that the pool was outside. <clears throat> plans gone awry. You've been there, you've set up plans, and, and once in a while you put a plan in place, and, and it looks good when you put it together, but then somewhere along the line you just think, oh no, this, this plan's going to fail. Th- this past week, uh, we took Nicole down to Northwest Nazarene University, NNU, uh, to drop her off for school. Freshman uh, uh, move-in day was on Friday, and so we spent a couple days on the campus. And I have some experience in freshman move-in day. In our days in Illinois, we were part of uh, a church home group ministry, and and the goal of that ministry was to minister to students on the campus of Olivet Nazarene University. And so we had a group of students that would come uh, every Sunday night and just fellowship in our home, and we'd study and give them snacks and and just provide an environment off campus that that felt more like home. Well, as part of the the kickoff for the year, all of the home groups in our church would get together, and we would show up at the freshman dorms, and as students pulled up and and their dads or moms backed the car up to the the dorm uh, residence halls, uh, our home groups would just descend on their vehicle, unload it, find out what room they're going to and take all the stuff so the parents didn't have to worry about schlepping it up and down the stairs. Uh, so I, I had some experience with that, and, and, and NNU does something very similar, and, and in both cases, I, I always like to look around and pay attention to emotions that I see, and, and there's, there's some students who are the, I got this, they're ready to go, they're in it to win it, and, you know, they have uh, they have their plan all in order, and so when their stuff shows up at their room, uh, you know, they, you just pull the string, and off they go, and they get it all set up. There's, there's other students who uh, are kind of more lackadaisical and you know, it's kind of in a daze. This is so surreal. I can't believe this is all happening. And then you see some of the parents. So you have uh, some parents who are, you know, just really involved with helping the students. And others are like, well, you're on your own now, kid. We, <laughs> we got you this far. Off you go. You know, there's some dads with the looks on their faces like, I don't know how we fit all this stuff into the station wagon, but it's here. And, and we, as soon as we open this door, it's going to fly out the back because I don't know... Uh, it's tightly packed. But there, there's all sorts of emotions. There's all sorts of uh, thoughts that you can tell are going on in the si- inside the minds of these students and these parents. And one of the things that I've noticed both at Olivet and uh, at NNU with, you know, being a, a parent of a student now is that <clears throat> you see some students who are just kind of looking around, and, and you can tell the question in their mind is, did I make the right plan? All of their thoughts, all of their plans, uh, all the financial aid, all of the scholarships they applied for, I, everything has come together for this exact moment, and they get there, and they begin to question their plan. I think my plan might fail. You see some students who... They don't, they don't want their parents to leave yet. They're not sure if they want their parents to leave alone. They, Maybe I want to get back in the car and go home. Both Olivet and NNU, they have activities uh, for students on Labor Day. There's, there are, Olivet has class. You have to go to class on Labor Day. Why? Because over time, the administration there has figured out that for new freshmen, if you give them a long weekend, that they can go home that's only a few days into their campus experience, a lot of them aren't going to come back. Uh, At NNU, they take all of the freshmen. It's a mandatory event. All the freshmen have to go on a retreat. So that keeps them occupied on Labor Day so they don't go home and decide, you know what, this plan's going to fail. I'm bailing now. Have, Have you ever made a plan that you thought might fail? have you ever second guessed a plan that you have in place you know you you work really hard at it and 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 set it in motion and then you just get the sickening you feeling in your stomach and you feel like ah I don't know about this maybe it's a financial decision that you made that you start to second guess or uh, a career change that you begin to think and rethink or You know, maybe it's a parenting decision and strategy that that you've made at some point along the way that you just kind of question, is this this right? Is this going to work? Or is this plan just set on a course to fail right off the bat? I think at one point or another, uh, I'm pretty sure that all of us would say that one of our well-laid plans failed true? As we read the the psalm this morning, I think a little context is helpful as we think about it. When the people of Israel were returning from their exile in Babylon, this was one of the songs that they were likely to sing on their journey back home, Uh, and maybe even sung it as the journey was coming towards a close. And they could see Jerusalem on one of the distant hilltops. And, and their destination is now in sight. And so they sing the words of this song. Let us go to the dwelling place of the Lord. Let us worship at his footstool. For the Lord has chosen Zion, has chosen Israel. The Lord has said, this is my resting place forever I will bless her with provisions. That's, that sounds exciting. That sounds like it's full of, of hope and excitement. And the people are really excited to get back to the homeland after a long exile in, in Babylon. You know, I imagine that, that there may be even a little uh, bounce in their step. Their spirits have lifted, even though they may be hot and sweaty and parched. When, when you see your end destination... You, you get a little pick me up, don't you? When when you know that there's only like five miles left in a really long journey, your spirits are kind of lifted. I'm almost there. I'm almost there. We're we're almost going to be able to get out of this car. I can imagine that the people coming back from exile, you know, become a little bit more exuberant as they approach their destination. And so they have this song on their lips, and and they are excited and and they're excited how God has chosen Israel and they remember all of God's promises that they've been rehearsing all the way back. But when they get to Jerusalem, when they, when they reach their final destination, they find a city in ruin. They, they find a city that's really a big pile of rubble. I imagine when all of their exuberance meets pile of rubble, some disappointment and discouragement sets in. I imagine that some of the people, many of the people perhaps, started to question God's plan. Is this, are these promises true? Is this accurate? I mean, we've been singing this all the way. We've been rehearsing how God has blessed Israel we have remembered the promises of how he's going to make Israel into something to be the light of the nations and bring his message to the world. And you would think then, if, if that's true, then our city would have withstood the onslaught of our enemies. Imagine there were a question or two lifted up to God. Why? Is this the right plan, God? Did, did we hear you correctly? Which leads me to ask the question... And this is really the question that I want to focus on today is, do you ever think God's plan might fail? Do you ever wonder that? And what do you do when you think God's plans might fail? Don't, don't worry. If you've had that thought, you're in good company. Uh, the people returning from exile probably had this question on their mind. Their life journey had not always been easy. They had been conquered and taken off into exile. Uh, they could look back at situations in their life and wonder: Is this is really this God's plan and, and purpose for me? But what they would do is through these songs and other scriptures that we would, that we read is when they had this question on their minds, they would remember back to all the ways that God had indeed blessed them and how God had carried them through to this particular point in their journey. They, they took a step back and looked at the big picture. Do you know the experience of these people that I'm talking about here? I don't know what your exact pile of rubble is, when you've reached the destination and you've found the city of Jerusalem in ruins, there are times in our life where we will have situations where that just cause us to question financial, relational, occupational, could be related to health. There's bumps in our journeys, little piles of rubble, that when we get to them, they sometimes just seem so overwhelming and so far from the courses that we sing about the experience that we might have with God that it causes us to wonder, is this, is this right? I think King David, you may know who King David is, he struggled with this question too. It's played out in the poetic verses that we read this morning. See, the people That were returning from exile as they were singing this song they they couldn't help but notice that david's name was mentioned four times in the psalm in verse 1 and verse 10 and verse 11 and in verse 17 so this psalm is clearly about an experience that that david had had in his life and it really was uh, this psalm is about the covenant promise that god made to david so, if we spin the clock back several hundred years to take a look at what this situation is that we're, that we're singing about here. See, this psalm recounts the story of how David brought the Ark back to Jerusalem, or to, to Jerusalem in the first place. Now, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, this was a, a wooden box that was plated with gold. Uh, it housed the Ten Commandments, Moses was the one who oversaw its construction way back when the people had left Egypt from slavery and they were out at Sinai and God gave uh, Moses the Ten Commandments. Uh, he, he instructed that they uh, build an ark of the covenant. It was 45 inches long, 27 inches uh, wide, and 27 inches deep. And uh, there were two cherubims that were on top and, and their wings were kind of out like this and one on each side. And so the wings, they kind of came together. And uh, this place was called the mercy seat, where the word of God was heard. And it was said that the presence of God hovered between the wings of the cherubim. And the Ark of the Covenant was said to represent uh, God's presence with the people as they traveled. And so this ark made at Sinai traveled with the people of Israel throughout their whole time uh, in the wilderness before they entered into the Promised Land. It was carried across the Jordan River, and as the people entered into the land and took control of the land, the ark was placed at Shiloh, where it resided for quite some time. It was a sacred box. It was a sacred place that the people would come, and, and, and it would just represent the presence of of God amongst the people. Well, if you flip in your Bibles, uh, if you want to follow along in 1 Samuel 4, uh, there's a famous story of a national tragedy in Israel where the Philistines came in and they defeated Israel. And the people of Israel, they really didn't know why they lost that particular battle. And so they were sitting around scratching their heads and they thought, well, Maybe, if we go fetch the ark from Shiloh and we bring the ark of the covenant, God's presence, to the battlefield, that if we try again, that, that maybe God will triumph over the Philistines. Well, um, in 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines got word that Israel was bringing the ark into their camp, and they got a little bit scared. The Philistines knew the story of Israel. They remembered how the, the, their God, Yahweh God, uh, rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He, he, how he had triumphed over Pharaoh, how he had protected them in battle. And so the Philistines, they got scared because they, they remembered this experience of Israel. But instead of running and hiding, they used it more as a motivational, like, hey, we're going to have to fight extra hard against this this god. He's in their camp now. And the battle happened, and the Philistines were triumphant again. And the Philistines stole the ark, took it to their land. And in 1 Samuel 5, uh, the Philistines, they took the ark, and they put it in their own temple, right next to their god Dagon. And uh, the first night that the ark was in their temple, the, the next morning when they woke up and they went into the temple, uh, the statue of Dagon had fallen over and was face down in front of the ark of the Lord. His, uh, his hands had fallen off, his head had fallen off, it was his body just right in front of the Lord's ark. It freaked him out a little bit. So this uh, Super Bowl trophy that they had, they started doing the parade around the towns in, uh, in in their land. And every town that they took it to, they felt a, a heaviness over them. It, it bothered them. And so they finally just said, you know what, we're going to take this and we're going to give it back to Israel because it's causing us nothing but problems. And so in 1 Samuel 6, we read that they, they sent the ark back to Israel. And it's quite the story of how it got back. They tied it to some... Um, oxen and and just sent it off and, and it arrived in Israel and the people were excited about it and and uh, they put it in a place called Kiriath Jerim. And twenty years it stayed stayed there. Uh, fast forward a little bit to 2 Samuel 6, when David had become king, he wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He he wanted to bring it to a place where it could be protected. He wanted to build a house around it. And so as the ark entered into the city, everybody uh, celebrated, glorified God. David was said to leap and to dance and to to glorify the Lord. And this is the story that we read about in Psalm 132. All of that situation that we just walked through in, in First and Second Samuel. That's the backstory to the psalm we're talking about today. That David wanted to build God a temple to put the Ark in. David wanted to build God a permanent facility, a permanent dwelling place for Him to reside. In the whole first part of Psalm 132, verses one through nine, it talks about what David wanted to do for God. See. David looked at how things were going, and he knew what the plans of God were, and he thought that maybe they were failing. Maybe they had failed. Uh, And so David, he wanted to fix God's plan. The first nine verses um, record the vows that David made to God, how David was going to build the temple. God had promised his presence with the people of Israel, um, that that God had promised that he would make their home with them, and and David looked around, and, and he saw the situation, and he thought God needed some help. And in 2 Samuel 7, he said, here I am living in a house of cedar in his palace while the ark of God remains in a tent. He looked at his own surroundings, and he thought God should have equal or better accommodations. I'm living in this house, this castle, this palace. God's living in a tent. I need to fix that. In other words, since you've been unable to build yourself a house in our neighborhood, I'm going to do it for you, God. That's kind of what we read in to David here. Now, I think David was very well-meaning in all of this. You can be well-meaning, but your passion can get the better of you on occasion. Um, See, David's passion at this point got in the way of him uh, of actually asking God if this was God's plan. Hey, I I see maybe how this plan might fail, so I'm going to go ahead and fix it for you. Uh, But instead of uh, saying, God... Is, am I thinking about this rightly? He just went ahead and did it. Have you ever been there where you think you know what God's plan is? And as it starts to unfold, it, it may seem to unravel and get away from you just a little bit. And, and so maybe you wrestle control back to yourself and you think, you know what? I, I think I heard God telling me this. I, I think God wants me to talk to these people or take this course of action or whatever it is. And once it starts, you, it starts to get a little sideways and you're, and you're not sure and you're tempted to, to go back on that. Maybe you think God's plan might fail, and so you wrestle control. You know, I can fix this. I can do it myself. But in the second part of this psalm, God responds to David. We get to listen in in this psalm on on what God said to David. We get to hear what God wanted to do for David. See, David was passionate He was exuberant. He was highly devoted to God. But all of that was exceeded by God's covenant faithfulness to David. For as excited and as exuberant David was to serve God, God had an even bigger picture, an even bigger plan than David realized. In verses uh, 11 and 12 of our psalm, God promises to establish David's descendants on his throne forever and ever. See, David wanted to build God a house, but God wanted to build David a household, something longer lasting something further reaching. He wanted to turn David's line into a dynasty, something that would last forever, a lineage that would span time instead of a temple made of stone that would crumble and fall at some point. Now, see, we have the luxury of of sitting here at this time and at this place, and we know the story of Jesus, and we believe that the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to David is found in the person of Jesus, the person in whom God chose to become flesh and who came and dwelt among us, the Jesus, the one who was crucified, the one who was dead, the one who was buried, but he was vindicated and raised to new life, and now he sits at God's right hand, ruling as king. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who came out of the line of David, and he's currently enthroned as the king of kings and as the Lord of lords. See, God's promise to David came to pass in Jesus' who now forms all of his followers, all who have made a choice to follow Jesus. Jesus forms us into the body of Christ, into a community of worship. Uh, we are, in fact, God's house, God's dwelling place. So, so what do you do when you think God's plan might fail? Well, first, I, I think you need to look at where your confidence is located. Is your confidence in you? Is your confidence in, in yourself and in, in your abilities, or is it in God? Are you putting your trust in Jesus? Are you putting your confidence in spreading this gospel, this saving message? Or are you simply seeking a happy and peaceful, comfortable life? Is your confidence in the Word of God? Or is your confidence in your own ideas? Do you prefer and do you ask what God wants for your life? Or do you tend to come up with the plan on your own? See, David was not wrong in his desire to please God. He was passionate. He was zealous. He was exuberant. He wanted to glorify God in every single thing that he did. He was truly committed to God. The only problem in this particular case was that he put his confidence in something other than God. If I could take a moment to make an observation. This one is free of charge. Uh, David's prayer Specifically, verses 3 through 5. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. That prayer encourages us to have a similar determination in growing the kingdom taking our place, taking our part in God's plan, sharing the word. You might hear the word evangelism once in a while, sharing your faith with other people. The observation is sometimes I think that maybe we need to take some notes from Brother David and his exuberance and his excitement and his passion. David's vow to the Lord in verse 2 was a commitment to following what he believed was God's plan at whatever it cost him personally. Comfort, sleep, hard work, uh, blood, sweat, tears, you name it. I will not give sleep to my eyes. It might take a couple all-nighters to get the job done, but I'm in it. I want to be in it. I want to serve you, Lord. I want to spread this message. I want to find a place for you to live among the people. David's exuberance, his efforts may not have been focused correctly, but they were certainly not sinful desires. They just needed a little bit of shaping, a little bit of forming. See, at the very least, I think these verses, they hit us upside the head like a sledgehammer. And they call out any Christians who are in any way sluggish about sharing your faith, with other people, family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, random people that you meet that God pokes you in the side and says, they don't know me. And sometimes that sledgehammer hurts a bit. It reveals stuff in us. David was willing to go without sleep. He was willing to go to whatever extreme was necessary Now, don't get me wrong, there's balance in life. Sleep is good. There needs to be a balance between work and between sleep. I'm not saying, don't ever go to bed, just tell people about Jesus. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, tell people about Jesus at whatever it might cost. I'd go out on a limb and say that most Christians, when considering their part in growing the kingdom, don't lose much sleep over people who are lost. There aren't any excuses. None. We are God's plan to reach the lost. Lost people matter to God. He loves everybody equally. Some of us are blessed and fortunate to have heard the word and to have accepted it. And once we have, the obligation that we have as Christians is to pass that along to somebody else. We are God's plan, you and me. And guess what? There's not a plan B. And so we read these verses, and I think we need to take some notes from Brother David. Passion, exuberance, excitement, hard work, maybe a sleepless night here and there. He was willing to work himself to exhaustion. See, we're told in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 19, I think it is, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. God resides in us. God's plan is that we are the hands and the feet of Jesus, that that we are to go and make disciples. That's what Jesus says as he's uh, ascending to heaven at the end of, of Matthew. We call it the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. See, we are God's ambassadors to the world. You and I are the plan to spread the good news. See, if God resides in those who call on his name, if God resides in those who profess Jesus as their Lord and Savior, then our job, your job, my job is to find a dwelling place for the Lord using the same exact words of King David. Share the good news with people. Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 9, I think is verse 38 or so. If you remember, he was looking out and he said, the harvest is plentiful. Pray for workers. Did you notice he didn't say pray for the harvest? He didn't really say pray for lost people. He said Pray for workers to go into the harvest. That's you, and that's me. So, the first thing, when you think God's plan might fail, is to examine where your confidence is located. Is it in God, or is it in you? The second thing you do when you think God's plan might fail is you trust God's plan. Uh, You believe God. You don't just believe in God. You actually believe what God says. You trust His plan, and you begin to work it out in your life. You you seek God in all things. When you get to a roadblock, when you get to a pile of rubble, you seek God. When you arrive at a destination and, and you find it in ruins, you turn to God. See, I think one of the hardest lessons for Christians to learn in this walk of faith, especially in the culture in which we live, is that God isn't as concerned about your happiness as he is about your devotion. God wants you to be fully devoted to him. See, sometimes we get this picture of Christianity, and we want God to come in. We want God to fix our problems. We want, to give, we want God to give us all of the creature comforts so that we can have you know, happy, comfortable lives. And this is not a promise that God makes to us this side of heaven. God wants your devotion, period. He says that He can be found if we seek Him with all of our hearts. So when you think God's plan might fail... You may be looking at too small of a picture, and you may need to trust him. I had I managed sales teams for quite some time, and for my sales associates, there were three plans that they could be on to manage their territory. There was one plan that was called the PIP plan, P-I-P, Performance Improvement Plan. Every salesperson was on a PIP plan automatically when they started. And a performance improvement plan simply meant that every week I would have a meeting with every salesperson and we would talk about how many cold calls did you make? How many phone calls did you make? How many appointments did you go on? How many proposals did you write? How many sales did you make? And then we would look back at the goals from the previous week and we'd say, okay, you said you were going to make 100 calls last week, how many did you make? 75. Okay, well why did we only have 75 and not 100? Or maybe it was 125. Well, great. What, what did you notice with the extra calls? Was that too much? And so every week, we would make a plan for the next week. And during the PIP meeting, uh, we would just sit down and, and, and review. Uh, the second plan that uh, in a, in a salesperson could be on is the ETR plan, earned the right. And what that meant is after six months and a really good track record of achieving goals on a weekly basis and, and good sales, uh, that the employees could be moved from a PIP plan to an ETR, which which meant that they've earned the right to manage their territory how they saw fit. If they weren't on ETR, then I helped them manage their territory. We managed it together on PIP. Well, then there was a third plan. It's called POP. Produce or perish. It was exactly like it sounded. These employees had a track record of not hitting their weekly goals or monthly goals, and at some point, you don't carry dead weight around, and you put them on a pop plan. And that month, if you don't produce, you're done. Don't show up. I know that sounds harsh, but you didn't want to get popped. Now, I say all of that... Um, sometimes employees question my strategy. When we are managing territories together, once in a while, the employees thought that my plan that I had for their territory, might fail. That I didn't know what I was talking about, that, that they were just being rejected and their proposals weren't working, or, or maybe they lost a the sale and they just were disappointed and discouraged. Oftentimes, somebody would come in and say, I don't know if this is the right plan. And, and I'd always ask him, well, tell me about how you're working the plan. And most of the time... They were not seeing healthy results because they thought the plan was going to fail and their behavior changed. They stopped working the plan. They were just going through the motions. There's no energy, there's no passion. I think there's some parallels with, with our spiritual life, that, that when you find the, yourself at your wits' end, when you come to a pile of rubble, when you find yourself discouraged or disappointed, ask yourself, am, am I reading the Word of God? Am I praying? Am I serving other people? Am I sharing my faith with other people? Am I placing my hope? Am I placing my confidence in myself, or am I placing it in God? Am I trying to go it alone, or am I letting God help guide and direct my life? See, when you think God's plan might fail, trust Him. Put your confidence in Him. God promised that if we call on His name, when you go to God, when you seek Him with all of your heart, you will find Him. This psalm is really a psalm of hope. It's a reminder to us that God's plan will succeed. Jesus died, yes, but he was raised to new life. He sits on that throne. God is already victorious. God's plan will not fail. Sometimes we need to trust God. Sometimes we need to seek him more earnestly. Sometimes we just need to go deeper in. Because, you know, at the end of the psalm, talks about the results, the abundance of provision, no poor, endless joy and excitement, no more enemies. Reminded me of a passage in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God's plan is the perfect plan. People of God said, amen.